listeners, and welcome to the MK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it's the morning of Monday, the 6th of, uh, 6th of December in Seoul, and still the evening of Sunday, the 5th of December in the east of the United States, where I'm joined by Zoom by Jenny Town to talk about North Korean denuclearization and 38 North. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can, and that's so that people can discover our podcast more easily. No reviews means no new listeners, and eventually the all-powerful algorithm pushes us down the internet podcast rabbit hole into the abyss of ignorance, and that will be the end of us. So please leave a review, and while you're at it, share this podcast episode with everyone you know and three people you don't. Secondly, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription. Uh, it's actually for an annual membership. It's only about a dollar a day, uh, and that helps to fund all the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out about North Korea each and every single day. And if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. So to introduce my guest today properly, Jenny Town is a senior fellow at the Stimson Center and the director of Stimson's 38 North program. Her expertise is in North Korea, US DPRK relations, the USROK Alliance, and Northeast Asia Regional Security. She co-founded and manages the 38 North website, which provides policy and technical analysis on North Korea. Jenny is on Twitter, at Jenny Town, where the E in Jenny is a number three, and the O in town is a zero. Welcome on the show, Jenny, and thanks for joining me. Thanks, Jacko. It's great to be here. For those few people who are listening who don't yet know, what is 38 North, and what is the Stimson Center? Sure. Well, the Stimson Center promotes international security, shared prosperity and justice through applied research and independent analysis, deep engagement and policy innovation. We're a think tank in D.C. And so for three decades, Stimson has been a leading voice on urgent global issues. Um, founded in the twilight years of the Cold War, the Stimson Center pioneered practical new steps towards stability and security in an uncertain world. And today, as changes in power and technology usher in a challenging new era, Stimson is at the forefront um, with emerging new voices, generating innovative ideas and analysis and building solutions to promote international security, prosperity, and justice. 38 North has been a program at the Stimson Center since 2018. Um, but Joel Witt and I actually started 38 North back in 2010. Our aim was really to elevate the public policy discourse on North Korea through innovative research and informed analyses. Uh, we're probably most known for our website, our web journal, 38north.org, um, which is an online platform for information and analysis on North Korea to really help the policy community better understand key developments and how they may shape Pyongyang's strategic thinking about its internal future and its place in the world. Okay, so that's a, uh, a, a good little uh, summary there. So basically, Stimson Center is much bigger than just North Korea, and 38 North is focusing on North Korea within the Stimson Center. Is that basically right? Correct, yeah. Stimson Center covers a wide range of, of security issues, everything from energy security, water security, as well as hard security issues, and has a real focus on Asia in general. So we have an East Asia program, a South Asia program, a Southeast Asia program, um, and within East Asia, um, uh, 38 North is part of the Korea program under that program. Okay. Does uh, either the Stimson Center or 38 North have a political persuasion? 
The Stimson Center is a nonpartisan think tank um, and 38 North, we try and provide a wide range of views. Um, we look more at argumentation than we do at the actual um, perspectives being put out, but we do try and um, provide the range to get people to debate the issues um, so that we have a really well-rounded and multifaceted understanding of the situation. Okay, oh, good, good. So you get hawk stars and everything in between. We try. <laughs> we definitely try. <laughs> and how did you personally get uh, involved in career issues? Um, so I, I started, my interest was more personal at first. Um, I, I am Korean. I was born in Korea. I was adopted when I was three. And so I'd always wanted to study Korea, always wanted to know more about Korea, um, ended up studying in Korea during the, while I was in college. And I'm going to date myself here because it was the 90s. <laughs> I remember um, the 90s in college. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, it was a time also, you know, for me, it was my first sort of exploration of Korean and Korean culture, Korean history, um, Korean politics. And, I, you know, being in the mid 90s, also, it, there was news coming out of North Korea um, about famine starting in North Korea. And I just remember a lot of my friends and colleagues around me at that time you know, when they heard this news, they, they saw it with great skepticism. They didn't believe it. And to me, this just didn't make a lot of sense of why wouldn't they believe this if North Korea is reporting that there's famine going on? You know, why is this such a controversy? Um, and I think that for me really started me down a path of, of trying to study more, trying to learn more about the situation and how the two Koreas have developed over time in separate directions. Okay, it, it's still... Um... Whether people believe certain things about North Korea or not, that, that's still a big question, isn't it? That, you know, I know um, for a long time there was debate, does North Korea have a nuclear weapons program? Uh, many people didn't believe it. North Korea denied it. And then, of course, they, they tested one in, in 2006. You know, are there prison camps in North Korea? These things are still very hotly debated issues and, and have been for a long time. It's, it's hard to, to prove something's true, but... But 38 North does a, a good job of it, uh, you know, certainly with it's um, uh, not just the analysis of, of, uh, of tech sources, but also satellite photography. Yeah. So, you know, it is one of those countries where because it's such an information black box at times that um, there there are times where you have to question whether what you're hearing is representative of a larger trend, if what you're hearing is misinformation or disinformation, because all of that sort of exists. Um, both on, you know, on, on many levels of society. And so as much as you can try and corroborate sources, as much as you can question sources um, and, and, you know, think critically about everything that you're hearing, you know, who is this source? Would they really know this? Would they have access to that information, um, you know, to try and evaluate the level of credibility? Is it coming from external sources like South Korean intelligence or U.S. intelligence, or is it coming from you know, informants inside the country. And if it is, why would they say this? How would they know how representative is this of a wider trend? Or are these just pinpoints of information that we're getting? Um, but certainly satellite imagery does help. Um, and it is something that we've done on 38 North since about 2011 of really trying to, you know, look into the country at what we can see um, since we can't get boots on the ground. Um, to really try and verify, you know, different developments or at least monitor different developments and what it might mean for 
the weapons programs for the economy for a wide range of, of developments and issues. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, Jenny, but to me, the uh, the North Korea watchers community seems to be a very male dominated field. Uh, yeah. I asked that ironically, because I'm sure you've noticed. Uh, why is that? And how is that changing? Or is that changing? Well, you know, Korean policy in general is a very male dominated field, um, especially at the senior levels, uh, you know, in Korea, Korea is still a very patriarchal culture. Um, and these being more hard security issues, these are issues that that tend to be more male dominated. And on the US side, you know, I think it's also the times are changing for sure, but in that senior level leadership. Um, a lot of the people who work on Korea issues on the US side come from a government background. And so, you know, at one point had high level government positions as negotiators, as intelligence officers, you know, in State Department, in, 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 in a number of different uh, of agencies within the US government. And because of that too, there's definitely some demographic trends <laughs> um, of, you know, when the government was hiring at certain times, uh, you know, it did tend to be more male dominated as well. So these days, I think you do see it changing, especially on the US side, where you do see more women in the field. The on the on the South Korean side, it's it's still definitely very male dominated. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, only at the like 20s or so are you starting to see more women get into um, these hard security issues. Uh, but it's there's a lot of times where yeah I'm the only woman in the room or the only woman you know at least in a speaker role um, at different conferences and stuff and it's 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 unfortunate um, but it it I think it is helping pave the way for more women to get into the field as well. Yeah, and last year you were named um, one of the uh, groundbreakers 2050 sorry 2020 50 women changing the world uh, by Worth magazine. Uh, what was that for? Uh, that was for my role in helping uh, found and, and manage 38 North um, and the work that we've done to help bring attention to this issue, help bring um, analysis to this issue, to help bring better understanding um, on online platforms through satellite imagery, through a number of different forums, um, and, you know, especially at a time when it was of, of critical importance in the U.S., mm -hmm. uh, 38 North. Uh, did get a lot of attention. Yeah. And are you also uh, mentoring and giving opportunities to uh, to young women academics and analysts who are coming up in the field? Absolutely. Um, I, I do have a lot of um, female mentees <laughs> over the years, and, and especially a lot of my former interns um, have been female and are now working in the field. So yeah. a lot of kind of the emerging scholars, mid-career level people, um, a lot of them did come through uh, my shop in terms of internships and, and mentees and stuff. So it's really great to see just a bigger pool of women um, mm. with this uh, experience and understanding and interest um, to help populate the field going forward. Yeah, hopefully we'll see fewer all male lineups at uh, conferences and seminars in future. Well, you know, the thing is, is that there are certainly plenty of women out there already who are well versed on these issues and, and can contribute to these. And the problem is also they're just not thought of in that way where it becomes a, 
well, if we have to have a woman, then we scramble to find one versus, you know, being top of mind. So there, mm-hmm. there is a whole culture shift that still needs to happen where representation doesn't necessarily mean equity. And so, you know, we really still do need to work on building equity throughout the field. Yeah. Now, um, Northeast Asia, regional security, it's one of your specialty areas. So let's talk about North Korean denuclearization, which is a word I can never spell correctly uh, twice on the same page. It's just a lot of typing there. Uh, North Korea showed the world in late 2006 that it has the materials and the capacity and the will to produce atomic weapons by testing its first nuclear blast. Why, 15 years later, is the world still treating North Korea as if it is not a nuclear power? Um, Well, Part of this is that, yeah, I think the world recognizes North Korea has nuclear weapons, um, but the the official designation and acceptance of it as a nuclear armed state or a nuclear weapon state um, brings a lot of implications to the nonproliferation community. So, you know, there are nine countries that have nuclear weapons. Um, five of them were, you know, written into the um, nuclear nonproliferation treaty as nuclear weapon states. Uh, three of them were never part of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, but went ahead and, and, and developed a nuclear weapons program. So North Korea is the only country that was once part mm. of the NPT that withdrew and then built a nuclear weapons program. And so the implications of that um, for other NPT states um, is, you know, is of a great concern. So, you know, as long as North Korea is still willing to talk about denuclearization, um, the push for North Korea to reverse course uh, is always going to be there um, because because of concerns over what it might mean for the MPT um, if if North Korea is ever fully accepted as a nuclear weapon state. Okay, so uh, there are, as you mentioned, uh, nine countries with nuclear weapons. Five have been grandfathered into or written into the, uh, the, the NPT. It's, it seems really important um, to the world community to get nuclear to get North Korea off nuclear weapons. But what about India and Pakistan, who are both in that, that in-between space where they have nukes, everyone knows they have nukes. They've talked about sometimes maybe, you know, if necessary, using nukes, but no one's really actively working at getting them uh, off the nukes. Why is that? Uh, well, I think that there is a judgment difference here. Um, so one of the reasons, for instance, why the UN didn't impose sanctions on India and Pakistan for building nuclear weapons was because they never signed on to the MPT. Uh. Um, so it is, you know, certainly as the world is trying to reduce nuclear weapons globally, mm-hmm. um, it is always still there, the pressure is still always there, but um, the the legal basis for punitive measures against it isn't. Um, and I think that's, you know, part of the biggest difference. And it is something that the North Koreans bring up a lot as well, is why can't they be accepted like Pakistan or India? Right. Um, and, and that is really the underlying rationale for that. So that it almost seems like uh, they made a historical mistake at some point signing on to the NPT and then leaving it. If they'd never joined it at all, perhaps they could be in that uh, that marginal space like India and Pakistan. Is that right? Perhaps. Um, but I think given the nature of the region where it is also, um, and 
the fact that, you know, for instance, South Korea doesn't have nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. I think the pressure on North Korea to reverse course would still be there. Um, but the, like I said, the legal underpinnings for punitive measures for taking that route yeah. um, would not have been as heavy. Now, it, it seems to me that over the, the passage of time that uh, more and more uh, voices are saying, at least off the record, that North Korean denuclearization is something that, if not actually impossible, at least is not achievable in this lifetime and probably best put off to a future generation, rather like Christians hoping for the return of Jesus. Do you agree? Well, I look at it this way. The fact that North Korea keeps committing to denuclearization in various different agreements as recently as 2018, um, we should still be talking about denuclearizing North Korea. Um, is it going to happen overnight? Absolutely not. Um, and, you know, I think we have to start thinking beyond just what would get North Korea to denuclearize and really start thinking about what gets any country that has nuclear weapons to voluntarily change course and, and, mm. and give up nuclear weapons. And, um, you know, that's not an easy decision. Uh, and, and it's certainly not something that happens just, you know, one day you wake up and, and this is the course you're going to take. Right. I should... I I have to push back a little bit, though, and say that when North Korea commits to denuclearization, it's committing to everybody denuclearizing, isn't it? It, it, it feels a bit like they say, yes, we'll denuclearize when the whole region is uh, denuclearized and nobody can ever threaten us with nuclear weapons again. That's how I understand, at least when, when North Korea talks about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula rather than denuclearization of us. It is a definition that has changed over the years. Um, and, and certainly does include the peninsula and not just North Korea. Um, and I think there, you know, there's a lot that goes with that calculation, though, in terms of North Korea is the only country um, in a region where everyone else has nuclear weapons, either by, you know, by their own indigenous programs or by proxy, like, like what South Korea does under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. And so there is a security component and a self-defense component to their nuclear weapons program um, that also has to be addressed while we're working towards um, giving up that program. Because certainly they've also seen um, what's happened to other countries that didn't have nuclear weapons, that did have value clashes, and politi especially political value clashes with the US and the Western world. Um, and those are fates like in, Af in uh, Iraq, in Libya, mm -hmm. yeah. um, that they want to meet. And so, you know, yes, it isn't just North Korea giving up nuclear weapons when North Korea talks about denuclearization. It is a broader security dynamic um, that needs to change in order for them to take comfort in and, and have confidence in making that decision. Yeah, it does seem that, uh, that Iraq and Libya particularly uh, get mentioned quite a bit in, uh, as negative case studies for, for North Korea. Are there any positive case studies that we can look to in human history where de denuclearization has worked? Well, there's really only one case where a country, a sovereign country, built a nuclear weapons program and then voluntarily relinquished it, and it is South Africa. And so I think there has been some study of South Africa and the conditions under which led to the conditions that led to that decision. Um, and in interviews, for instance, F.W. de Klerk was talk, talked a lot about, um, you know, at the time, 
the decision was driven by a number of factors, including that he himself was anti-nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, it was also a change in uh, government systems going from you know, the apartheid government to democratic government. So suddenly you had an alignment of values with the Western world, um, especially with the US, um, in, in which would lift some of that isolation and, and the punitive measures sanctions that have been put under because of the apartheid government. And then you also had uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. And one of the reasons that really drove uh, South Africa to develop nuclear weapons in the first place was this fear of um, Soviet expansionism in, in Africa. Um, and suddenly overnight that, that threat fell away. Um, and so it really opened the door for them to make some pretty bold, pretty drastic decisions um, about their the future of their nuclear program, even if some of the, you know, especially on the military in South Africa was was not in favor of this decision, but um, the new president decided mm -hmm. that this was the route that they were going to go and that would have the best future for the country as a whole. Jenny, can I put you on the spot and ask you to remind our listeners and me, when actually did South Africa begin its nuclear weapons program and when did it end it? Well, the, the majority of the program was built um, in the late 70s um, and they ended it in 1989. Um, and when it, and granted, when it ended, there were only seven nuclear weapons. It was still a very small program, unlike what we have in North Korea or unlike what we believe North yeah. Korea has. Right. Okay, now what can we learn, what can we take away from the South African case that might be relevant to the current stalemate with Pyongyang? I think some of the, the biggest questions, and I, I think that a lot more research needs to be done into that South African case, um, of really looking at you know, this idea of what, what were bigger influences in that decision? Did it take um, the personal touch? Was that the, the biggest driving force? Um, and would he have been able to make those decisions if the security situation hadn't changed? Um, or if, if, again, they stayed as an apartheid government. So for instance, um, if you still had that values clash with the Western world, um, would they have been confident in, in giving up their nuclear weapons that some kind of conflict wouldn't arise in the future? like what we've seen in the cases of like Libya, for instance, where they mm. had an ambition, they still had a values clash and eventually it worked against them. That relationship was not sustainable over time. And I think these are all valid questions for the North Korean case as to, you know, we keep expecting North Korea to make this decision to give up its nuclear program without any of these things changing. We don't have a change in leadership. We don't have a change in the security situation. If anything, the security situation is getting worse over time because of rising US-China tensions. And you know, we still have this values clash, right? Between the political values clash between North Korea and the US. So you know, of these factors, um, what, what is possible to change um, and what would be the most influential parts of that um, that we should be trying to pursue through the negotiation process in order to give North Korea confidence in making that decision. And you know, I think it, it, at this point in time, it goes beyond North Korea as well as we look at, for instance, Iran and what's happening in Iran um, and how close are they to following a North Korea 
um, path um, versus you know being able to pull them back before they cross that threshold. Are incentives also a big part of that? I mean, I'm thinking it's, it's possible to have uh, values clashes, but uh, you know, if, if the incentives are right and are aligned in a good way, then uh, people, you know, countries can still be uh, moved to either not go down the nuclear track in the first place or to uh, to switch from that track to a different one. I think you know incentives are important, but at the same time. Uh, there has to be a relationship there for the incentives to be sustainable. And so, you know, I think, you know, this is really why you know, the U.S. and China, there's a lot of room for cooperation. I think there's appetite for cooperation on North Korea, but there is not agreement on approach. The U.S. does tend to take a more punitive approach. The Chinese tend to take a more incentive-based approach. Um, and until they can come together on that, there's there's always going to be these tensions as to, you know, how do we cooperate without, you know, undermining each other in that process. But, you know, incentives work best when there is already a relationship there of trust and, mm. and sanctions work best when there is already a relationship there um, where the threat of sanctions is more influential than the sanctions themselves, right? Like the countries that have economic relations don't want to jeopardize those economic relations um, for certain decisions. By time you actually impose, pro impose sanctions, um, there've been many studies done that um, by time you actually impose sanctions, you've already resigned to the fact that they're not gonna change this behavior. You've already threatened it. Um, and, and so now, now that you realize they're not going to change just because the threat of losing something that they're going to, that then you impose the sanctions. And so I think, you know, if we're, if we're talking about incentives and if we talk about even just some of the past agreements that have been made where incentives have been in place, the track record for implementation has not been great. And so until you have a better track record of success, even on the incentive side, um, there's always going to be hedging, there's always going to be skepticism, um, because there's just so much deep mistrust on both sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I find that even talking about uh, whether sanctions have moved North Korea to come back to the negotiating table, that even finding agreement on that is, is quite complicated, right? That some people believe that uh, when Kim Jong-un uh, agreed to meet with uh, with President Trump in 2018, that that was a result of the intense, uh, what do they call it, uh, maximum pressure. Uh, and then others say, well, no, it was just because he was ready and he was confident that he had uh, he'd already built up a, a strong enough armament. So yeah, even finding agreement on what whether sanctions work or not can still be a, a very fraught topic. Well, I mean, sanctions play a number of different roles. So in terms of actually imposing punishments for you know, illegal behaviors, um, it, it does play that role as well. We can't just say sanctions don't work at all and that there's no purpose for them. Um, but certainly, has it been effective in changing North Korea's strategic calculus? No. Um, North Korea, you know, the more punitive measures that have been put on North Korea, the more it doubles down on its weapons development. Um, and so I, I think one of the reasons, I think one of the bigger reasons why North Korea came back to the table in 2018 was because, um, you know, the South Koreans really went out of their way to create an environment 
where you know different outcomes may be possible. So you know we had gone from a political environment that was highly you know high tensions, um, you know, high brinkmanship on on you know from the U.S. and from North Korea, um, and just a really politically unstable security you know insecure environment to suddenly you know South Korea opening arms to mm -hmm. the North Koreans in the lead up to the Olympics, and it created a pathway to talk about. Um, relations, not on the nuclear issue first, but, you know, on issues of mutual interest of, you know, North Korea participating, for instance, in the Olympics and, and the South Koreans making sure that the Olympics were safe and that there wouldn't be, you know, missiles flying overhead um, during the games. And so fortunately, that opening came, the North Koreans had already had already declared victory, right, mm. on, on building a nuclear, their nuclear deterrent. Um, Kim Jong-un at the end of 2017, after the last um, nuclear test, basically said, okay, we have a nuclear deterrent now. And so his Byung-jin policy was also done. Um, the, the nuclear side of his Byung-jin policy was mm -hmm. done. And then he could refocus efforts on the economy and the economy requires improving and repairing foreign relations in order to really create new opportunities for economic development. I want to go back for a moment to the, the questions that you asked about uh, what it was that moved South Africa away from the nuclear path. And do you already have some provisional answers to those questions? And I'm particularly thinking of the one about, you know, the whether the personal touch was a was an important factor. I think the, the personal views did matter because there was criticism inside the country um, when the decision was made, even though it would mean, you know, the lifting of sanctions and, you know, and uh, um, and improved relations overall, there was still a real resistance and reluctance. Um, and there was a lot of political capital that he mm -hmm. had to expend in order to um, carry through on that decision. I think also you know, but again, it was much easier for him to justify this by saying that the security situation had also changed drastically away from, you know, the, the insecurity that existed, you know, during that Soviet expansionism era. And so, you know, like I said, would he have been able to make that decision and justify that decision um, and convince people to go along with it if there hadn't been that security, um, it, the change in the security environment is really unclear. Uh, and so, you know, all the pieces sort of fell into place for him to be able to make a very controversial move um, that ended up working out for them in the long run. Whereas in North Korea, you have a situation where, you know, Kim Jong-un has, again, signed on to denuclearization as a goal, has apparently told, for instance, uh, President Moon that he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want the legacy of nuclear weapons to burden his children. They think there's some room there, but the problem is, is, you know, the, the security environment isn't improving. <laughs> um, and yeah. the relations have not been sustainable over time. So even if there have been a warming of relations here and there, um, it, you know, it, it hasn't been anything to count on over time. And, and there isn't that confidence that if they, if they really make a leap, um, that they're not going to get burned in the process. Yeah, I think we also have to remember, though, that, that Kim Il-sung himself said that he wasn't interested in nuclear weapons and, uh, and supported uh, 
anti-nuclear demonstrations to take place in the streets of Pyongyang, you know, having uh, foreigners carry banners, uh, anti-nuke banners in, back in 1989, all the while this program was, uh, uh, was already in its, in its infancy. And, you know, North Korea has said more recently that nuclear weapons are its sacred sword. So if you believe, as some experts that I've spoken to do, that Kim Il-sung had decided already to obtain nuclear weapons of his own, certainly by the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, if not right after the Korean War, when both China and the Soviet Union both made clear that they would never provide him with his own nuclear weapons, then nuclear weapons, it, it's more than just something that, that came up uh, you know, later on in the period, that it's, it's been a long cherished dream of North Korea's leadership. And the only um, real response to an external existential threat that is worth having. And isn't that investment of, of time over decades and capital and money and labor of a different order of magnitude than in South Africa, uh, such that the same tools or leverage maybe cannot be used? It's, it's definitely a different order of magnitude. And North Korea's nuclear program and nuclear infrastructure, um, their fissile material production capabilities, their missile production capabilities are much more advanced and much more extensive than what South Africa ever had. Um, but the question is, is you know, can, can North Korea be convinced, right? So the thing is, if we, we might not believe that they're willing to give up nuclear weapons, but the whole point of diplomacy is to try and convince them that that's the right path. Um, but in order to do that, you know, this, there has to be an understanding of you know, why they have nuclear weapons and what might be different drivers for that. And if you look at the way that North Koreans talk about denuclearization, you know, it, it does require a shift in the relationship itself to, to really go down that road, especially to get to the end of that road. And so if you look at the Singapore joint statement, um, this is a pretty good reflection of the way that the North Koreans look at the denuclearization issue is that it does require a transformation of the USDPRK relationship. It does require a transformation of the security relationship into a more peaceful regime. Um, and then you can talk about you know, denuclearization. There's steps you can take towards denuclearization of the peninsula through that process, um, but it is a trust building process and it's one where you know, they're not going to make that final decision until the security situation overall is, is different enough for them to justify it and for them to have confidence in it. Regionally speaking, uh, you know, Japan, Taiwan and, and South Korea don't have nuclear weapons of, them, of their own, but they're covered by uh, security agreements with the United States. But do you, do you fear or do you see any signs that Actually, we may be going the other way, that, that more nations might decide uh, that it's best for them to denuclearize. Sometimes we hear voices uh, in South Korea that, uh, you know, maybe South Korea should get its own nukes. And at the moment, that's still very much in the minority. But could that be a, a growing thing, in, in, in regionally speaking? Well, actually, that, that sentiment is increasingly in the majority, um, you know, so public opinion in South Korea is such that, you know, more than half of the population thinks North Korea, South Korea should have nuclear weapons, whether it's U.S. tactical nuclear weapons or if it's, you know, building their own. And I think there's more and more um, officials and, and especially of a certain generation 
that are really pushing for the idea that North that South Korea should have its own nuclear weapons, not just U.S. nuclear weapons, given the fact that U.S. weapons on the peninsula would still be under U.S. jurisdiction. And does that really, um, you know, assuage, assuage uh, South Korean concerns of mm. you know, what happens if and if they need to use them, what would be that process? Um, so I think, you know, we are we are seeing more countries think about nuclear weapons more so than not. And so again, with the whole Iranian issue, um, with the the um, unilateral withdrawal of the US from the JCPOA was incredibly damaging to that process um, for potentially preventing Iran from going down that nuclear path. Um, and the question is now, will they be able to, you know, renegotiate terms um, that would be you know, that would build confidence that, you know, for the Iranians not to do that. And if Iran goes nuclear again, then who else, who's, yeah. who else might be next, right? Because they would be then the second country that was part of the NPT um, and then develop nuclear weapons. What do you see is, is China's role in providing cover for North Korea, whether that be in terms of having a nuclear program or, um, living with sanctions without being too much affected by them or or anything really well china does what's in its best national interests and that is to maintain stability in the region um so no they don't want north korea to have nuclear weapons and, or to have a nuclear program they're not willing to go to war over it um and they don't want the instability um in the region to try and you know make, you know, try and attempt to uh, denuclearize North Korea by force, right? So there's a lot that China is willing to do, where again, they're more of the mindset that we can, we should be trying to incentivize and build ties and build leverage through, you know, economic cooperation, um, so that North Korea has something to lose. North Korea has been so isolated from a lot of the international financial systems and a lot of the international community that, you know, when you impose more sanctions, um, it doesn't have a big impact on what they what they lose by by those new sanctions. So I think, you know, the the Chinese are often trying to um, you know, trying to follow their own path of what they think is the best way to handle this issue. Uh, and it, it's often at odds at what the U.S. would and U.S. and South Korea would like to do. We've basically seen very little diplomacy and dialogue since U.S.-North Korea talks break down, broke down uh, in Hanoi in early 2019. Is this a dangerous place to be, given that North Korea keeps working on its weapons programs? Well, you know, whenever, whenever we're not in negotiations, North Korea continues to advance um, its weapons program. So is it dangerous? Yes. Does it create, it increases the threat that North Korea can pose to the region. But yeah, you know, the- And, and also to the United States, right? I mean, that's- Yeah, and to the US um, and to the alliance in general, because it, it is one of those situations where the more North Korea advances, especially on long range missile capabilities, their intercontinental ballistic missiles, yeah. the more concerns it raises in South Korea and Japan um, about the credibility of extended deterrence over time. 
Um, so yeah, the more the threat, the more North Korea can threaten the U.S. directly, um, the the less the more anxiety it breeds in the region as to what would happen in the case of actual conflict um, and where U.S. would react first or more wholly. So why are we where we are now? It would just sort of complete breakdown of uh, of talks. Uh, what what have the parties done wrong? I think there's what have the parties done? I'm trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the part of the problem has been, you know, during the Trump administration, um, I, I think there was a lot of political will there to take a bigger move. Um, but on, not on the US side, you mean? On, on, on the US side, on all sides, actually. Okay. I think everyone was sort of willing to try something different, try something bigger, but without a real consensus on what was big enough. And so what you saw leading up to Hanoi was there was a lot of um, there was a lot of goodwill. There was a buildup of expectation that they were going to get this first interim deal. Um, there was many parts of it that had already been decided. And so, you know, you only had a little bit at the end, um, but of, of critical issues, right, of the nuclear um, part on the North Korean side and the sanctions part on the U.S. side. Um, and I think what you saw in, in uh, Hanoi was, was it a real disagreement about the value of what was, what North Korea was putting on the table and what they wanted in return. Right. And so, you know, we were willing to do a certain amount and I think our expectations were relatively low as to what that would be. North Korea came in, was willing to do what they saw as a very big move and wanted very big rewards for it and a reciprocation for it. And so, um, it was also, I think, you know, Kim Jong-un's first time really negotiating a deal. Mm, um, mm, yeah. I think there were, you know, probably some rookie mistakes there to know, you know, when to hold and when to start to um, compromise. So I think, I think one of the biggest problems of not getting a deal in Hanoi was that obviously on the North Korean side, there's also a very, there's a very high risk for diplomatic failure that doesn't yeah. exist on the US side, right? So there were people um, in that, uh, for instance, the, the North Korean negotiators um, are no longer in their positions uh, after Hanoi. Um, the only one left in the foreign ministry at, at still a high position is Chase and he, and I'm yeah. sure she's going to be very cautious going forward. Um, the foreign minister, Ryong Ho, who had always been sort of pro-engagement and pro-improving, um, advocating for improving relations with, uh, you know, the U.S. and, and especially the, the outside world, you know, is, is gone as well. So um, trying again is going to require, you know, some pretty big assurances that outcomes are going to be possible and quickly. Not, not like let's keep negotiating for a long, long time, but that there has to be, you know, some outcomes up front uh, in order to build the kind of trust and confidence and political cover needed to keep negotiating for the big things. Um, and so until I think we're ready to do that, until we recognize that, again, the way that North Korea negotiates 
comes with a lot more risk than us, you know, going into a negotiation. I, I think we're going to continue to have this stalemate. But I remember uh, after the after Hanoi, of course, together with the feelings of disappointment, there was still uh, a sense of hopefulness that the negotiations can continue, that neither side had uh, had slammed the door shut, that uh, President Trump came out still saying nice things about Chairman Kim, and uh, you know, well, we weren't ready; they weren't ready to make a deal, but we'll keep talking. But it it didn't go anywhere after that. So, is that uh, you know did did North Korea decide that negotiations were not worthwhile at that point? Or, I mean, what? why couldn't they have gone on uh, the working level talks? Yeah, my, my understanding of the working level talks was that after the failure of Hanoi, instead of going back and, you know, making a few other proposals that mm. had built on what they had already put together, that they started from scratch again. Right. So by the time we had that working level meeting, for instance, in Stockholm, yeah. um, you know, it wasn't a continuation of the negotiation that started in Hanoi, but it right. was a revert to let's talk about principles and process and, right. you know, what you guys are thinking. Um, I think the North Koreans went in thinking that they would continue the negotiation. We're waiting for, you know, that counter offer that never came. And I think that's also, you know, another big problem of the way that the U.S. has been negotiating this over time is that once a deal is, once, you know, for instance, we didn't get the deal in Hanoi, but instead of picking up where we left off and, you know, using what we know we had already agreed on as the incentives as like a first step, let's move forward incrementally in these ways um, that, you know, we keep starting over and i think for the north koreans this is incredibly frustrating that they that we keep coming back to the table to talk about the same things and can never progress even you know by without even getting you know that first step um agreed to that's interesting because I, I got the exact opposite impression from talking to steve began who said that uh, he was trying to to carry things forward but that north koreans kept the north korean leaders kept putting new negotiators in place with him. So he would be effectively starting from scratch again with a new negotiating partner uh, at every single meeting. You know, yes, a new negotiating partner, but I'm sure those new negotiators came in still with the expectation that they wouldn't be starting over. And I think that was part of the problem is that on the North Korean side, the expectations were to keep moving forward and to keep, you know, keep trying to get outcomes based on what they knew of the U.S. position before. I think on the U.S. side, there was still, because there was new people, we needed to start over where I don't think they necessarily needed to start over. Are we sure that the U.S. did try to restart over each time? This is my understanding. Um, yeah, I wasn't, I obviously wasn't in the room, so, uh, but that is, that is the general sense of what happened. Okay. Uh, sometimes it seems that North Korea has the upper hand in negotiations because when it wants to talk with the United States or South Korea or Japan, it can and does, but the reverse is not always true. One thing, another thing I, I heard from talking to Steve Began is that it's not always possible to reach out to North Korea, even with the, uh, the permanent uh, delegation to the United Nations mission being present in New York. You know, you can't always uh, talk when you want to. Yeah, sure. Of course, North Korea has the upper hand because we want them to do something. Um, so, you know, there there's a lot dependent on whether they're 
willing to talk about it and they're very good at ignoring us when they want to yeah. <laughs> when they're not ready to talk or when they're not hearing anything that they think is yeah. going to turn out um, into anything new. And does it also have an advantage because its government doesn't have contending voices of citizens groups and political disagreements with other parties to balance and listen to to incorporate it in its own policies? Yeah, I mean, it's wholly a, a government decision. It's, you know, Kim Jong-un's decision, whether they're going to return to negotiations and, and why. And even his advisors, like I said, the, the, risk, the risk assessment is really high as to what would make them recommend to come back to the table. Mm. So as long as the U.S. isn't, uh, isn't providing messages that that indicate that short-term gains are possible, that outcomes are possible, different outcomes are possible, um, and you know perhaps even what those might be. It doesn't have to necessarily be public messaging, but you know private messaging. Um, going to North Korea, I think, needs to be a lot more specific about what we're looking for, what um, we're willing to do in return, um, and you know give the North Koreans that expectation and confidence if they come back that something is achievable within a timeline that will, you know, that they'll be able to keep their jobs. How does the Stimson Center and 38 North try to influence and inform the policy debate on the U.S. side? Um, well, we run a number of, you know, roundtables inside D.C., private roundtables um, with different stakeholders. Uh, we put out a number of reports um, from different contributors. Um, providing ideas um, into the negotiation process of what could be potential incentives, potential programs, potential approaches. Um, we in the past have also engaged in track two diplomacy with the North Korean officials. We used to meet about once or twice a year, um, every year for about 10 years before, um, before uh, government to government relations restarted. Um, and, you know, in, in the process, we, we do try and, you know, help wherever we can and provide mm -hmm. insights wherever we can in that process through a variety of different um, mediums. Does a, the, do you also have influence on the South Korean side? We have, uh, we have a, you know, pretty regular discussions with our South Korean colleagues, um, both in government and academia. Um, and again, you know, feed them also different proposals and different ideas um, as to, you know, what what needs to happen or what what could be influential or acceptable or, or you know proposals that resonate better with the North Koreans in this particular situation. Um, so yeah, we, we do try and um, inform South Korea, US, we have mm -hmm. a discussion with the Japanese as well um, yeah. as you know what could be um, potential ways forward and, and how to get out of this stalemate. Well, where to from here? Where do you anticipate we could be in a decade's time in, in, at the end of 2031? And of course, multiple answers are possible and welcome here. Wow, I think so much depends on, <laughs> so much depends on um, what happens in the South Korean elections uh -huh. uh, next year as in to 15 whether, weeks from now. Yeah, um, whether they have another liberal administration, um, which might try to continue um, a, you know, a pretty robust inter-Korean agenda, um, or if you have a conservative administration that pops up that will be less focused on North Korea, because I do think there's um, more attention paid to North Korea when South Korea's 
is pushing for it more attention in Washington when, um, when South Korea is pushing for it as an alliance issue. Um, if there's little appetite in South Korea to for inter-Korean relations or for USDPRK relations, I think it, it really falls off in, in Washington as well, um, unless the North Koreans do something either very positive or very negative, you know, especially at a time now when there's so many other issues going on that the that the administration is is using their political capital on like the pandemic yeah um, the withdrawal of troops from afghanistan um you know what's happening in iran and especially u.s china relations these are all you know big strategic issues and big domestic issues that are taking a lot of energy um and focus from the administration where you know making unpopular decisions on north korea um is is not at the the top of their <laughs> priority list. Right. So ten years from now, really, you're saying a lot depends on on what happens in the Korean election, but of course, also a lot depends on on what Kim Jong Un wants too, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, uh, on what Kim Jong Un wants, but also on what the U.S. is willing to do to change his calculus. Mm. And I think, you know, the, the biggest problem is if we continue a policy that requires North Korea to make the decision first or yeah. to act first, we're going to continue to be in a very similar situation that we are now, 10 years from now, because, you know, North Korea is not going to unilaterally make big strategic decisions that would, you know, move this process in a positive way forward. There has to be diplomacy um, and pretty proactive diplomacy. And, and I think there has to be, you know, some unilateral moves to create a, a different kind of environment or to signal more concrete outcomes that are, you know, that are going to take a lot of political capital from the, from the U.S. administration to do. Because North Korea is one of those issues where there isn't a lot of consensus on what should be done. And so every decision is going to be criticized, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's either too little, too much. Um, it's not a. It's, there's no winning, even if you win. Um, and I think that's a. It's a very hard thing for the administration to take on and to champion, um, especially again in in light of a lot of competing priorities. Do you remain hopeful? My my optimism, you know, ebbs and flows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's natural, I guess. <laughs> okay, well, I want to thank you once again for coming on the NK News podcast today, Jenny Town. Thank you, Jaco. It's been a pleasure. Don't forget, listeners, you can find Jenny on Twitter at Jenny Town, where the E and the Jenny is a number three and the O in town is a zero. And you can also find her, of course, at 38north.org. Ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, take a look at our NK Pro platform which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. And if you have feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arius Dare and Brian Bess for facilitating this podcast and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks and listen again next time. <laughs>